0: Hey everybody. Welcome to the Chan's Logic People Project where we talk to people, talk about people, the things they do and the trials and tribulations that happen along the way to make them the people they are today. Today I have Julio Julian with me. He's I got crazy with that Julio. He <laughs> has moon glow jewelry. He opened the business, he's scaled it over to at least seven figures that I know of and he's also certified awesome and he's ready to go today. So Julian, why don't you introduce yourself?
1: How's it going? My name is Julian Pluff. Uh, I am the owner of Glow Jewelry. We are a jewelry brand featuring the picture of the moon from the date of your choice, like a birthday, an anniversary, or any special date that you want to remember. So our jewelry is pretty cool. Uh, I love snowboarding, surfing, uh, car racing, and uh, I also like to invest in uh, real estate for passive income so that I can uh, create additional streams of income to have an awesome life.
0: That's exciting. So let's let's take it way back to the old school and, and talk about your OG days growing up. So when you were a kid, were you like, man, I'm going to make these moon-shaped jewelry pieces. I'm going to start selling them now and slinging them on the street corner like a lemonade stand. Or did you grow up in a different way and kind of fall into this?
1: I grew up in a different way. I fell into it. But my dad was an entrepreneur, a business owner. So I think I, I learned a lot from him. Uh, but I really just oh, wanted to, my to have my more. own...
0: It's funny. My dad was as well, and he told me never to go in your, into business for yourself. And I did the exact opposite.
1: <laughs> did he? Uh, did he do well at it, or did he? Uh, did he fail?
0: He did well. He's still open. It's been like fifty years or something. But he, he said it's hard work. You work for yourself. Everything depends on you. So just go work for the post office, and you can retire.
1: <laughs> really, really, so unusual. So unusual. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean. I think normally, yeah, we see what our our parents do, and I think it's it rings true that most people do probably what their what their parents do. Uh, so it's probably more difficult for people that didn't don't have like somebody in their their family that that shows them the ways a little bit. And my dad kind of showed me the way, so I took a lot of a lot of things. I learned a lot from him, but I did things in my own way as well. Um, so the uh, but you wanted to speak a little more about the OG days, right? Like growing up and things, or.
0: Yeah, let's talk about growing up. What was it like? Were you in a big city, small town? What got you to where you are today, basically?
1: Mm. I grew up in, in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. And from a young age, my dad had a business selling products at home shows, fairs, different events. And I would love to jump up there at these events at a young age, 12, 13, and, and sell and talk to people and sell. And I always I always liked the thrill of that. So I, I did that uh, when I was really young, a uh, forum just helping out. And then I, in school, I wasn't too interested in high school. I never did that well. I was really social. I love the social aspect of school, but my grades weren't that good. So my principal told my dad uh, that I would be better off working for him. She saw that he... Had a good business and she thought it would be a good opportunity to work for him, which I think was a was a great, great decision uh, for her to recommend that because, you know, it's true. It's like I wasn't that good at school, but in in sales, I actually excelled where you can we're talking and and disturbing people a little bit actually gets you far as opposed to in school that, that gets you kicked out.
0: That's an interesting point. A couple things there. I remember growing up with my dad as well. We'd go to job sites with him and we'd go to sales opportunities and he'd take me with him. And I always thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I think I was eight years old, nine, maybe. And we'd get a donut and orange juice and we'd go to the customer's house. And I remember sitting there being like, oh, you know what? My dad's awesome. Just buy this stuff. It's going to be great. I promise. But (laughs) you, you get exposed to it and you start watching it and you pay attention to it. And it really molds you into a person who's more comfortable around people talking to strangers, basically, and getting them to purchase what you want them to purchase. And and I think that it dives into school as well. So we have people who are really good at taking tests and getting good grades. And then we get have people who are really good at the social aspect and almost the leadership aspect. And I think it's a huge divergence we see in the modern education system.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So at the age of 16, I basically quit high school and started working with my father, mostly in the U.S. at that time working basically at fairs selling different products uh in fairs a- and the products that we were selling were were good uh but they were kind of gimmicky a little bit uh but i got really good at it and i was selling them and 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 traveling all the time and i was earning it was on a commission basis so there was no no paycheck so it's it's kind of like having your own little business within a business uh where you're on commission only and uh, by the age of 19 I had saved up around $30,000 at the time I was living with my parents, didn't have too many expenses. And I read the book, Rich Dad Poor Dad, which shifted my thinking in a way that when you make money, you don't really just want to spend it all, you want to have that money keep working for you and invest it into things that will, will continue to keep providing income for the rest of your life, essentially. And, uh, and then I bought a duplex, a two family home at 19. Uh, I think the mortgage was like $500 and the rents were like 1200. Uh, so it was a good little spread there. And that's when I started making some, uh, some passive income.
0: Nice. So after reading that book, you you had 30 K, you bought the duplex. How did that go? And did you continue to buy property at this point?
1: Yeah, so I bought that duplex in uh, 2007, kind of when everything was crashing, but I bought it in upstate New York in Syracuse, right near the university. And it was, it was so cheap that the price couldn't get any lower, and I also bought based on the income being higher than the expenses, the mortgage, so I knew that even if the economy crashed or whatnot, that I would always be able to, to sustain and keep that piece of real estate. Um, what was your other question?
0: other question was so you bought this duplex and, and when you bought it did you see this as something that you wanted to continue doing buying real estate and essentially making income off of the real estate or was it something you bought that you wanted to kind of dip your toes in
1: yeah that's right so I read the book and then and then I set out a goal it was it was just to buy 10 uh, single family homes or duplexes uh, in the next 10 years so I just said look I'll buy one of these per year if they if they all pay me three to $500 in 10 years, when I'm 29, I would have three to $5,000 in income. And uh, and I did just that. And to celebrate once that happened, uh, I went out, I bought a Lamborghini, uh, which the, the monthly payment was around $2,500. It wasn't brand new. It was like an 09. And I essentially took the income that I made from the real estate and put it towards the car as my, my reward. Um, that was my reward for doing that. And it didn't really cost me much because the... Income that I make from the real estate just goes towards the the payment of the car.
0: Yeah. So, work me talk, walk me through buying these homes and essentially setting yourself up to buy the next one. Are you? Do you have a lot of capital available to continue buying these things, or do you get loans or mortgages or investor-based loans? How does this process work?
1: Yeah. So the process works like this. So it's very similar to the first one I bought. So the first one I had thirty thousand dollars to invest. that property, I think it was like $70,000 total price, and I put uh, 20% down, so it was like $14,000 uh, plus the closing costs, whatnot. Let's just say it was around $20,000 total to purchase. I bought similar homes afterwards, uh, Las Vegas, Phoenix, and Dallas, which in right when I started buying, 2008, 2009, um, the market was very, very low, and... Uh, Similar process. For example, I bought a, uh, I believe my second home was in Las Vegas. It was a $300,000 home that was foreclosed on. Uh, we, I bought it from the bank for $85,000 uh, with a mortgage and uh, and immediately I rented it out for $1,200 uh, and what I put into that deal was uh, was 20% again, which was the, the minimum down payment required for a traditional mortgage uh, as an investor. And uh, the mortgage, I believe, was --'m just trying to remember, it wasn't much. I think it was maybe six, 700 dollars, and we're renting it for like 1,200. So there was a spread there. And then I kept doing that in Dallas and Phoenix, and I bought many in Dallas, and just every year I kept buying them. On, uh, same same type of price range, around 90,000 to 160,000, the income always being much higher than the expenses.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a good deal. And 08, that was huge. One of the best periods to actually buy property. I mean, we bought something that was a quarter of the price that it is now. And so you generate this amazing income with these low mortgages. So you can have a huge profit margin off of what you're, what you have and the assets that you purchased. So as you were, as you were moving through this, how many pieces of property did you essentially buy and how long did it take to collectively build all of this?
1: So I, I stuck with a plan of, of just one per year. So I currently have 10, just one per year, every year. Uh, there was a year or two I didn't buy because I was uh, saving money. And also I wanted to make sure that my, my tax returns were all in place uh, to be able to to afford them because in order to have many investor loans, as you probably know, you need to make sure your debt to income ratios are in line, your credit scores are in line, you have six months reserves on every property. So it did take, uh, it did take a little bit of, of time Uh, as I bought more to sometimes save up so I knew what I had to do so I saved my money for two years I didn't buy but then after that I bought I think two or three in one year then two so I really stuck with the original plan when I was 19 it was kind of a boring plan but it was buy one per year for 10 years which is basically 10 uh, in 10 years which is what I did I didn't buy one every year but in the end the the end goal I ended up hitting it and I was really happy about that.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think that's a that's a great process and a and a and a solid plan. And it doesn't sound like it's a, a sort of get rich quick scheme that everybody's peddling right now. Like, oh, just go knock on doors and buy property right now, and you'll be successful. I think it, you had it mapped out, you had it systematized, and you figured out what you needed, how to get it, and and what the right margin was to make it successful. So when you're buying these single-family homes, would you say they're middle? class homes or are they lower income? Or are they somewhere in the center? What do you think is the best piece of property and the best foundation to buy on?
1: I don't think they're lower income. They're not section eight. They're really, the people that rent are are your school teachers and their income is around thirty five, forty thousand 40,000 a year. Uh, and they're renting anywhere from uh, 700 to 1,500 per month for for a good home. So I would say they're like B minus C homes right across the middle. Uh, and they're, they're at affordable price points that I feel like in any market, people will will want and they'll always rent. Uh, we generally, when there's a vacancy, we lease it up very quickly. I think because the pricing is just right, as opposed to sometimes higher end properties, they're fantastic, but you have a smaller pool of, of potential tenants to rent to.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. You find the, the basically the sticking point or the, or the sweet spot. So I know people can rent from this much, this is what they can afford, and this is where it's going to be consistently and continuously available based on how many people are around and out there. And so I think this is a really good spot because $700 to $1,500 a month really dives into the perfect, almost middle-class income where you know you have a lot of people who can dive in, they have the money to pay for it, but they're not quite into the luxury or high-end properties where they can afford it.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: So then after all of this, uh, you started to dive deep into Moonglow and you started building up this jewelry business. So when you built up this jewelry business, how did this transition happen? Did you do this at the same time as building up a lot of these real estate properties or did you do this after?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I originally, when I bought my first property, I was working for my father. I was 19 years old. Uh, I am now 31 years old. I worked for my father, and then at around 23, 24, I really wanted to break off and, and do my own thing. I really wanted that independence from, from my father. And my father had found this jewelry brand. It wasn't called Moonglow. He called it Moonglow. Uh, but it was from an artist in Montreal, and it was, it was that concept. It was jewelry featuring the picture of the moon from the date of your choice and it was a product that he sold uh in different fairs and different things like that and the people that would run it were always were always running this this particular uh brand in a, in a they were people that were interested nice people but they were very interested in, in just kind of making money and just just selling it you know just selling it where i really saw it i was i I saw it as a brand, I saw the way people reacted to it and I was like, this is actually something that I, I can really, really stand behind. I, I think I can do a great job branding it, I think I can build a great website, I think I can build a great wholesale business and essentially what I did is I, I took it over. I said, look, look, just give me this one because it's not a big part of your business, it's a very small part of your business. Um, so you essentially gave me the opportunity to uh, to take this this product and, and turn it into, uh, to a brand.
0: Nice. That's exciting. And, and so when you bought it and you took Moon Glow over, did you have a good amount of finances to build the business up or were you starting from scratch or, or where were you at in this process?
1: So the revenue, the revenue when I took it over was around 120,000 and it was all from, from fairs and like festivals and fairs. So basically we would travel to a fair in Massachusetts for 10 days. We would sell. And then we would go to San Diego, set up shop there at a San Diego fair, sell there, and just go, you know, fair to fair, uh, selling it ourselves. And that's that's how it started.
0: Nice. And, and so what's the first thing you did when you started to take it over? Did you want to maintain that revenue from fairs, or did you want to switch it so you had the ability to sell online or sell in other avenues?
1: That was the first thing I realized uh, was that we had an online presence, but I don't even think you could order from the website. It was, you know, those days where it's just like a... Uh, it's just like, a, almost like a pamphlet on the internet. And I was like, well, I think having a website would be a good starting point because you're, you're showing people this great item and all of these thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that may see your brand, pick up a card, they, they may want to purchase in the future. So we built a website uh, first thing and, and started investing in some photography and, and things like that. So I knew right off the bat, like, okay, building a website is going to be number one and creating an, a stream of income right there.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good choice. That way, people can actually find you and have the capabilities to order things online, which is a huge market outside of the fairs that, that you guys had running. So, as you were building the website, what were the. Did you find it difficult to build a good website? Did you have to hire people or did you bring people in house for it?
1: So, I worked with a design agency, a website. Uh, building agency at the time and and it was difficult it was there is there is a lot that goes into it obviously with the photography and and we kind of have a little bit of a complex product because there's like moon phases and dates and and there's some calculations so there's some coding that needs to be done on that portion of it so we did all that it wasn't extremely hard I was just so excited for the challenge I'm so excited excited to get this off the ground that it it never really felt like work but there was a a lot of time spent on getting the website off the ground.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. It's always a process, especially if you have calculations and specialized coding and all of that good stuff. So after you built the website up, what was your next step? So you got the website going, you're you're looking at selling stuff online, you want to make this happen. How did that go?
1: Exactly. So we got the website up and going, and then what I started doing is... Uh, our revenue, the majority of our revenue was still in those fairs. So we actually started doing more fairs. Then we started doing Comic-Cons and different events and more events. And then I hired, uh, was it two or three other sales reps to come on board to do other events when we weren't there. So my plan at that time was really to to build that channel, like the fairs. And I was like, well, wow, the the sales are so good in these events. And, and it was to build that portion of it. Uh, but that did change over time. Uh, and, and the time that it changed was I was at an event in Chicago. I was at c 2 C2E2, which is a comic con in Chicago, Illinois. And I basically worked all weekend with two other sales reps. I had flown in from Florida to do the event. We sold like, I think it was like 12,000 in sales, which is, which is great. Like for three days at an event. But then I I did a wholesale sale to somebody and I forget I think I sold it was like ten thousand dollars off the bat And it was one phone call and that was life-changing because I said what is more easy spending a week? Flying to Chicago doing all that work or one phone call and it's the same amount of income
0: (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense instead of all that travel you can say hey look I can actually scale this and to a point where I don't have to kill myself to make it work so at that point you figured out that you could essentially scale your business to a higher level if you didn't have to travel all over the world doing all these things and so what'd you do next how did you scale that up and how did you make that work
1: so then i realized that the the wholesale channel because that was a wholesale sale we're selling our product to a store or it was a chain of stores at that time i said well there's industry trade shows so In about, I believe it was 2014, 2015, I exhibited at the uh, New York Now, which used to be called the New York Gift Show. And that's basically a wholesale trade show where the buyers come in, they see the brands. And I did the first trade show and it went super well. I, it was just me. Uh, and Well, actually, it was me and Jessica, I, I apologize, uh, which was uh, our sales rep at the time who would handle all of our wholesale sales. And But I was doing most of the selling. I really wanted to be there. I really wanted to be in, in, in the front of the booth. And I was. And I, I didn't know how it would go, but people were interested. And I did really well. Uh, we paid our, for our booth and, and made a whole bunch of, of sales and and. Product profit as well and built all those great relationships and, and that's was another moment where I realized wow this this really is a channel that, that can be scalable and then we started booking more and more trade shows and different uh, wholesale events where we can keep growing the brand through retailers.
0: Yeah I think that was a really good choice for you and it allowed you to really scale and scale into different markets based on the wholesale availability. So when you started to get diving deep in the wholesale, did your profitability rise? So you you started the company that was about 120K. Did this rapidly rise or did this rise over time as you started to get into these new dynamics?
1: It it rose over time. I think in 2014 is when we hit uh, a million. And what I also realized is that channel, the wholesale channel is actually more profitable than doing the events. So your actual net profit at the end of it all uh, is higher and that's simply because to do events it's, it's expensive because you have to ship equipment you have to fly out there rental cars hotels booth costs there's many different costs involved uh, where wholesale there still are costs involved but they're just not as high as doing doing those events
0: yeah, that makes sense. You don't have all those variable costs that you have to deal with and that stuff starts starts to add up. So as you were building the company, was it a different company was the dynamic different as you hit different financial markers? So you have, after the 300k mark, 6, 1 million, talk to me about that flow and and as the business grew and how you managed it and what it looked like.
1: It did change. It did, it, it kept changing. Like we kept we kept changing and and at first our branding wasn't on point, which is something now that I realized is so important. Like we kept changing the colors and we kept trying new things. Cause I was always like trying to adjust to see what would work better. Uh, and then it, and then it became our, atten- like a focus, like, okay, we need to hone in, like get the branding down. So it's always consistent because people would see us at a trade show one time and we'd be using all black. Like it was very black. It was very dark. It was the moon. It was dark. And then we would change it to like green and then it was green. So it, it wasn't consistent. And we realized that that would cause an issue moving forward because you won't get that that brand recognition and people won't recognize you because it's not consistent across the board.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. People want to experience and feel something that they feel good about and that they trust and that they continuously see that brand in the same way they start to develop the trust and they start to develop the oh, okay i know who that is style and that's when you see the huge brands so everybody knows what they are they trust them automatically because they have built that brand recognition so i think that was a, a pretty good point for you so as you scaled up and you were going towards that one million mark what did it look like in terms of building up staff growing the business uh, where were the were there any choke points or sticking points you hit
1: such, yes, yeah, such a process. So when things were small, like one, one million revenue was still was still pretty small uh, it was just me the co-founder already uh, and maybe like two people in the office one person on the phones and one one person shipping things uh, and and as it got larger it got more and more difficult because you had more people and I, I didn't go to school for business so I, I just learned as I go I read some books and things and always try to educate myself but I would learn as I go and, and we had many times uh, just dealing with people was was the most the hardest point uh, for example you have items to ship at one time and we really need to get them out and and uh our one employee that ships items he you know he was sick and he just couldn't come in and you know i had to do it myself I had to stay there till midnight and i would always hustle and try to get through it but as you get bigger you can't really do that because there's just too many orders there's too many phone calls too many emails uh that you just can't you can't power through it like you can in, in the old days so that was one instance uh of uh, of a situation that happened that uh you know, just, just a struggle.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, and so when you noticed that these were problems and you had to be there till midnight and you had to replace people yourself, what did you do to combat that in the future? And how did, how did you fix and alleviate those problems? So
1: I, I don't want to jump ahead because that it, it didn't really become an issue up until I'd say around a year and a half, two years ago, where it really became an issue. Um, like a year and a half ago, two years ago, it, it, it became an issue with a lot of people like I was traveling I'm always trying to grow the top-line revenue and and we were kind of growing a toxic environment in in the office a little bit and we had problems with employees and and they they weren't on board with the goal they didn't really understand the goal and then uh, one of my friends told me about uh, kind of like an advisor to really help you structure your company and she said that uh, she said that it really helped her business. She works in a small company and it helped her business tremendously. So she introduced me to this person. Uh, his name's Caesar, And he really uh, took us through his whole program. And we brought like, we got rid of a lot of people. We brought new people on board and, and made sure that everybody was on the same page. And we have like weekly meetings and accountability charts and all of these different things that a growing company should have that we never had, uh, just because I didn't know, and I was so focused on on just growing sales, and I assume that this part just just gets you know just gets handled, but it really doesn't. You need to make sure that your your team's in place because you're really only as good as your team.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think it's really a huge piece right there that you talked about. You added the advisor, someone to help you from the outside to build, scale, and grow based on what they know and based on what you don't know to ultimately help you have a successful business. I don't think enough people, especially in the small business world, take advantage of the ability to find a mentor or an advisor to really help them understand where they need to go because that person's generally already been there or helped other people get there. Yeah,
1: I can see that on paper, it doesn't seem like a logical expense, and it's usually very expensive, but it actually is a great expense, and it's it's paid for itself many, many times over, and it's also given me a life, because if you're constantly having to deal and put out fires, it, it's not really so fun anymore, and there's always going to be things that, that do pop up, it's, it's not a perfect world, but if you have some structure, and you have a great team in place, then you're able to rely on people, and, and it's then the machine works much better.
0: Yeah, totally. So as you were growing beyond the 1 million mark in 2014, how did the business, you found the advisor, you started building, you started scaling. So now what did it look like? You're out, well, you went from well, 1 the advi- million. Go ahead. I was going to say the
1: advisor was actually actually later, but what happened is the timeline of the business was 2014, a million. And then it went to 2 million, uh, 2015 and kept growing. Uh, and then this year we're going to do about 8 million, but What happened is, we were really into wholesale, like I said, that was our main thing. And then, I was in Greece one time, uh, a couple of years ago, and I was reading an article about a business that, uh, it was in Forbes magazine, and it was a business that scaled using Facebook and Instagram ads, and they scaled from like zero to, I believe, 1.5 million was the article. And it was plugging this agency uh, called Mute6 in Los Angeles, and I gave them a call. And we started working, and and that's when I decided to to scale web. Like before that, our website wasn't; it was a small part of our revenue. But then I decided, hey, I really want to scale like our website business. Because I realized wholesale is fantastic and I love that business, but you're still at the mercy of, of the retailer and the retailer kind of controls your business because if they don't want to sell your product, they won't sell your product. If they want to move you off the shelf, they move you off the shelf, that's the end of it. But if you can sell directly to the consumer and you control that uh, conversation with the consumer through email, through Instagram, through different things, it's, it's much more reliable. So I wanted to not, you get rid of wholesale. I mean, anyway, I love that business. It's a fantastic business, but just diversify my risks a little bit.
0: Yeah, I like that. It makes sense. Direct to consumer always gives you, it gives you a really good pathway and a really good realm to get your products where you want them to go. And you have ultimate control over where it's going to go. And so talk to me about that. You started to dive into Facebook and Instagram and really getting the social plus the website aspect. Did you bring someone in house for this or did you hire out and contract with an agency to grow, build and grow? Because often this can become a rabbit hole where you'll put a hundred K into it, and not even know what happened. And then you have to bring an agency in.
1: Yeah, no, we were, we were always profitable. But before I jump to the, to the website, I'm just going to go back into the wholesale. I just wanted to say something about it because our wholesale business was good. And I went through many different sales groups and sales reps uh, that were like commissioned companies that carry many different lines, so multi-line reps. And it was okay. But a, a turning point in that wholesale business that really... Brought it into the seven figures was I met this great sales rep. Her name was Tara. We brought her on as director of sales, and she was a rock star. Like she's really that that uh, you know that ten percent that that person who who's very good at what she does. She's a great salesperson in that industry and. She started working with us and and growing our wholesale channel and it's still to this day we work together and she has that channel down and she's very good at what she does. Uh, The retention rates are good, everything was good. So that business was already in place and then I started focusing on the, the websites.
0: Yeah, I like that. So what do you think the biggest thing Sarah did as she was growing the sales for the wholesale? What was her claim to fame and how did she shine and what was her main point of operation that made her so successful?
1: I think she has experience. She had been in the business for a long time. She was the right person, but she she had a couple of lines that she sold that uh, were large jewelry brands. So she, she, she already had that existing clientele that was an easy introduction and she was well-respected. And when I met her... Uh, through a retailer because at the time, the, the way I found her is I was asking retailers that were already selling our brand, hey, do you know of a great sales rep, we're, we're looking to take somebody on uh, that could help us grow our business and Randy in Pennsylvania introduced me to Tara and first she was really hard to get to she wouldn't really take my calls and then she kind of gave me a shot she's like i'll be in las vegas for a trade show i'm all the way in florida so i fly out to las vegas for this trade show um she's kind of brushing me off she's like i'll give you like 10 minutes or something like that so i show up there with my sample and you know i pitch her on it and i tell her how great it is and and she's like i'll give it a shot which which is the what she can do really i'll present it to a couple of key retailers i'll see what they think and i believe that the first retailer she she took it on right away and i think she showed to like 10 people and eight of them took it and she was like okay you've got something here like let's let's talk you know let's talk further but I really had to you know I had to put myself out there I had to travel and and really find her because good people don't just great salespeople is what everybody's looking for and and business is always asking them to sell their products so you really have to make sure that you you stand out and, and give them a good offer because everyone's trying to everyone's trying to work with them
0: yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good point. Everybody wants a piece of that pie, and and if they're in high demand, you really have to show them why you should, why they should care, and why being part of your team is going to be a really good experience for them.
1: Exactly, and and, and also a good product, good brand uh, helps, which I think helped us. Uh, like I said, she did present it. And I, I knew from the beginning, though, go, to go back to the beginning of the story that this product was a winner. When I first sold it in events and fairs, I saw people's reactions. I saw how much they loved it. So I knew that we. my job now is, is really to get it to more more people. It's to make sure that it's, it's, it's being sold in many different channels because it will sell. But my job is to get it out there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Get it out there, get it available, get people aware and then get people to purchase ultimately. Which exactly. is always a great plan. So then after you brought on Sarah, she helped build that wholesale business to the seven figures. Was this the point to where you started looking at direct to consumer?
1: Yeah, exactly. I had a conversation with a mentor of mine. Uh, his name's John. He sold his business for 40 million and he was advising me. And he looked at the percentage of revenue coming from which channel and he said, you know, you really need to be direct to consumer. He's like, you're way off. You're like 90%, you know, wholesale. Like you need to, you need to be direct to consumer. Like these other brands, look at their percentages. And that was like, you're right. And then I read that article I, uh, about the marketing agency. So I contact the marketing agency. We started working together and it was, it was small budgets of, of, uh, Facebook and Instagram ads. And let me also tell you that I was investing in SEO uh, early on, and also organic social media. So, like 2011, we were we were already doing Facebook, we we're already doing Twitter, we were quite active on there. Uh, we weren't really doing any paid ads. Uh, we did have our search our uh, search engine optimization pretty well ranked because we I started doing that early on as well. Uh, but we never did paid ads so much. Like uh, we maybe tried some Google Ads, but we never really had a real budget for it. And this agency in Los Angeles, we started working with, and they specialize in Facebook and Instagram ads. And we started to to invest in, in some ads. And at first, it was it was okay performance, uh, but we we worked together to really get that performance up. And there was a lot of things on my end that I had to do as well. Like they told me early on, they're like, "Your website, it's it's kind of uh, not it's kind of not very good." It's put it in a nice way. Your photography is not that good. Like he's like, "There's only so much we can do. We can bring people to your site all day, but if they're not connecting with your brand, they're not buying. That's that's on you."
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Sounds like a pretty a solid agency. They looked at the, the entire funnel and process, not just the ads to drive people to the page, but the ads to drive people to the page, to drive people to the website, to get people to purchase. So it's that whole optimization channel, which I think is incredibly important because tiny little changes and adjustments can impact the entire infrastructure of how a campaign or something is going to work, how your cost per click is going to look and your purchases and, and, and a lot of that stuff. So it, it sounds like they were on the right path. How long did it take you to build up uh, a solid system and a solid platform to have Facebook and Instagram ads run well and have profitability and ROI off of them.
1: It took about a year to do a, a complete redesign. It took about a year from the time they started telling me to the time we finished the project. So ads are, are generally going to be good when your budgets are small. I was, I had goals that were, uh like seven-figure goals, and they were like, the thing with this is if you start scaling and you want to spend a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars a month and create you know five hundred a million dollars a month in income, like you your website, your experience, your photography, everything needs to be top-notch, and we can't take you there unless you make the investment on your side, uh, which is what I did. We we were on Drupal. Uh, and we rebuilt on Shopify plus, uh, we connected with a great photographer and we just started building everything, descriptions, everything really started building it out on the new Shopify plus platform. And that whole process took about a year.
0: Yeah, that's exciting. And so at this point, once you got that developed and built up did that, add in the profitability ratio and the direct to consumer channel to help offset the entire dependence on wholesale.
1: Yeah, so that was that was the big changing factor. When we changed that, we were able to scale up the ad spend and maintain profitability, and and that's what uh, that's what really really changed our business because then we we're able to scale uh, with the ad spend because our funnel. And again, it's it's not perfect, it's always changing, it's always, the industry changes so fast, user experiences online change so fast, like you, you have to adapt, so it's a never-ending thing, uh, but that was one that was it was long overdue, uh, so it did uh, it did have a big impact. Uh, our conversions went way up, our ad to carts went way up, uh, the experience was much better, and we were able to spend a lot more on Facebook and Instagram ads, but the revenue also went along with that, so we maintained profitability while scaling.
0: Yeah, that's great. So once you built that up, what was the profitability and, re- and revenue associated with your business at this point?
1: So the year that we really started to uh, to scale up was like uh, 2016. Um, and the revenue in 2016 was about $2.4 million. Uh, then in 2017, it was $3.7 million. And then 2018 was was a great, fantastic year for us. Uh, it's almost done. Uh, today's December 19th, but we're looking at hitting about eight million this year.
0: Nice. And what was the big factor that got you to that eight million point?
1: Of- the the majority of our revenue, about 5.5 million of that, is is online. So that was the biggest factor because. The wholesale business, the other fair business I told you about, they're great businesses, but it is harder to scale. It takes more time, more investment. It's it's much more of a people to people business and there are ways to scale it, but it usually takes a higher investment and it takes more time where selling direct to consumer online, you can scale it. I'm not saying it's, it's easy by any means, but you can, in my opinion, you can do it a lot faster than you can in those other two business models.
0: Yeah, that totally makes sense because direct to consumer, you can get people to make purchases right now. Versus on the other side, you need to get people to make decisions to make purchases eventually, and it's a much more thoughtful process. I would have thoughtful process in terms of people and understanding how they work and what they need to make it work.
1: Exactly, exactly. It's uh, it's 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 scalable, and I think right now is uh, is a good great time. I mean, the costs I think are are affordable. And again, it doesn't work all the time. You, you have to tweak. Like we have to tweak so many times. You have to tweak things all the time. We have weekly conversations. Uh, we're always developing new things on our websites. We're always trying new ads, new videos. So you have to keep up with it. There is investment. Uh, it's not, you know, set it and forget it by any means. But if you do all that stuff and you work hard at it, um, then you can maintain, maintain profitability and, and really keep getting more buyers into your store. And uh, as long as your retention rates are high, people like your product, they will buy again. So there's a compounding effect, you know, and it gets larger over time.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And and getting repeat purchases tends to be a lot more profitable than trying to get the initial purchase because you're building those brand evangelists or those brand followers who want your product, know about it and want to be re-exposed to it because they enjoyed it.
1: Exactly. Uh, For us, uh, an acquisition cost can be $20, $30, but an acquisition cost on returning customers is $0. So that's, that's a pretty good price.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So where are you at? What are your future goals? So you're, you're, you hit 8 million in 2018. What's your, what are you guys looking at for next year? What are your projections and where do you want to be? So I try not to go too
1: far into the future, but next year we're shooting for 12 million, uh, which we could, we could go over, but that's, uh, that's our goal right now. Um, I think we're excited about it and it's, it's within reach. Like a lot of the goals I set, they're they're usually i know i can achieve them you know sometimes if i set them too big i i get like really uh really sad or discouraged a little bit if i don't hit them so i try not to go too crazy and set something just unrealistic and then you you get discouraged so 12 million is our goal for next year
0: i like it and so if you looking at your the 8 million and the 12 million what's your profit margin on this is it is a high profit margin business or is it a medium or or where's that at
1: uh it's around 20
0: yeah so that's pretty good so you're in a good spot
1: in a good spot in a good spot yeah uh, it came it came fast because you saw the like the ramp up it's it really it came quickly uh and i think it's important to have good margins on your your product and and we do have a good margins on our product because that's important because if you're margins are very small. It's very hard to invest uh, in these things. So right off the bat, I think you have to have a product that that has decent margins so that you're able to grow and scale.
0: Yeah, absolutely. If, so this has been a pretty good talk. We've we've dove deep into your business, what you've done, how you've grown up, and how it's really evolved and how it's shifted. How have you created better market dynamics and, and a market where you don't depend on one thing? So if you could give people listening one piece of advice on growing and scaling a business, what would that piece of advice be?
1: So just like I said earlier, make sure your margins are good so that you do have... Because if your margins aren't good, it's it's really hard to be profitable. It's really hard to scale. Uh, I it never felt like work to me. Uh, every day was a vacation, even though we we were technically working really hard. So you really have to like what you're doing, like that that hustle and, and really those challenges. It was uh, when when I had to stay up till midnight or 4 a.m. doing orders around Christmas. When it was just me and the co-founder, uh, we really loved it. You know, we we loved it because it was growing. And so really love what you're doing. Make sure your margins are good. Don't be afraid to invest into things uh, that will will make you money in the long run. Maybe not immediately, but in the long run. So spend some money on those things. Don't always try to pull uh, all the money out of the business and and just be as profitable as you can. Invest for for long term uh, as opposed to just short term.
0: Yeah, totally. I like that. Makes sense. Gets people in the right mindset that this is, it's a process. You have to be in the right mindset. You have to have the right people and the right processes, and then you can ultimately be successful. But it's a continuous evolution as you grow as well, because you're going to hit sticking points and choke points. So if people want to get a, to learn more about Moonglower, or learn more about you, how can they find out for more information?
1: I think Instagram is the best place to find me and my brand Moonglow. So it's uh, Julian, J-U-L-I-E-N underscore Vern, V-E-R-N on Instagram. And it's Moonglow Jewelry on Instagram.
0: Perfect. So you can find Julian on Instagram at Julian underscore Vern or at Moonglow. And if you have questions for him, hit him up on there on the DM. If you have questions for me, as always, hit me up. Facebook.com forward slash chan's Logic, and I'll help help you out. We'll work through whatever you need. Thanks again for being on the show, Julian. I think this was really impactful, and it'll help people out a lot, especially in the entrepreneurship realm.
1: Awesome. Thanks for having me. Great show.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. All right, you guys. I will see you next week for another episode of The People Project. See ya! Ciao!